So, hi everybody, I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is the Marvel Reread Club. One thing that is going to be happening today is that you are going to have to stand there in your wrongness and be wrong. I am. Several (laughs) things. Uh, About about never seeing Ant-Man's elevator again and about Central City. Yes, as well as that Jack Kirby never drew Iron Man (laughs) and that, oh, what was the other one? I took notes. (laughs) <laughs> i cataloged all of your crimes let's see oh yes you said that from now on we'd be starting with amazing spider-man but it's bi-monthly at first so we're not starting with amazing spider-man so that is true as um, uh, yes. were four four mistakes i made <laughs> i had totally forgotten that spider-man was bi-monthly i didn't remember either but i'm just you know putting it all on you yes i was wrong about everything as we go through these books we will see much evidence of my wrongness tonight i i had totally forgotten half of these things i think it's a general rule whenever i say on this podcast well we're never going to see that again or that's the last time we'll see this happen in a marvel comic then i am wrong because even though this is my third time reading all these comics it's obviously my first time paying close attention to them usually i feel like i'm the one who's always wrong about everything so i figured in the off case where it's the opposite then i'm just gonna soak it all in So uh, both Matt and I have been reading all of the Marvels by Douglas Wolk. Yes, I just uh, finished it too, so I think we both finished it now. Yes, I finished it yesterday. Yeah, and it's a fascinating read. One of the things that he did say in that book is that you should absolutely not do what we're doing right now. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But then again, we're not trying to read from 1961 until 2021 in order. (laughs) We don't know how far we're going to get. He was actually trying to read every single Marvel comic published since 1961. He has done it. We are merely pretenders to the throne. We are trying to read all the Marvels one month at a time. I'm not sure we're going to get caught up. And uh, he did it. It is a fascinating book. And uh, yet it sort of gives you a brief sketch of the overall arc of Marvel history starting in the early 60s up until the present day with just a few little highlights along the way to anchor yourself with the thought that, you know, if you're not somebody who has been a longtime Marvel Comics reader, this would give you sort of a primer to the overall story arc and some anchor points that you could grab to find your way into that world. And it's it's a fascinating book. Should we go ahead and get started with our first comic of the month, which is not Amazing Spider-Man, but is instead Fantastic Four number 13? Yes, Fantastic Four continues to chug along still with Kirby on the book, and Spider-Man is still intermittent, which I had not remembered, and Fantastic Four is still rock steady every month. So let's go ahead and do Fantastic Four number 13, uh, the Fantastic Four of the World's Greatest Comics Magazine, Mystery on the Moon, enough fantasy and super characters to fill three magazines. That is true. One of the <laughs> most fantastic tales of all, more than 200,000 miles from Earth, the Fantastic Four face the menace of the Red Ghost. Also in this spellbinding tale, you will meet the most dramatic being of all time, the mysterious Watcher. Who is he? What is he? So, the most recent Marvel show that we have all enjoyed, I greatly enjoyed it, was What If? 
who knew that the Marvel Universe would be so thoroughly exposed on TV and film that The Watcher would have its own show in which he actually becomes not just the main character, but becomes a hero by the final episode. I was a big fan of that show, and I'm a big fan of this comic. I thought that this is one of the very best issues of Fantastic Four. I just love this issue. Yeah, uh, and I mean, clearly the Watcher is a very important character going forward, although very quickly his vow to never interfere will be very much like the Prime Directive in Star Trek, where, you know, it's a rule they only bring up because they're breaking it all the time. But in this first appearance, he does he does play by his rules a little bit better. And well, he sort of does. I mean, he, he once I said a little bit better, <laughs> a little bit better. If you're just going to observe, he could just not let them know he's there, but he doesn't do that. And this issue is inked by Steve Ditko. I believe this might be the last instance that we're going to see of Steve Ditko inking Jack Kirby. And of course, as I say that, I realize we just said that whenever <laughs> we make a statement like that, it's wrong. So <laughs> get ready for all for a whole bunch more issues where that happens. I could set myself up right now and go like, oh, I say you're wrong, Steve, but I'm going to throw it back in your face. But no, I think you're right. I think this is the last time we'll see it. So therefore, we can someone else can throw it back in both of our faces if it happens again. Yes, uh, if, if we're wrong, then we can both stand here on our wrongness and be wrong. Yes. So let's just give a quick sum up of the plot here. So it starts out where there's a fire in the Baxter building. We see Mr. Fantastic in a fireproof, quilted, stretchy bodysuit, and he rescues the rest of the Fantastic Four from getting hurt in the fire. And it turns out he is experimenting with a new rocket fuel. One thing that I find is interesting is they tie in the, and I don't think they use this actual term here, but what's known as the Tunguska explosion into this. In the early part of the 20th century, something happened in the northeastern corner of Siberia where there was some massive explosion. And no one's 100% sure what it was, but it was most likely some sort of meteor or something like that. And we were just super lucky as humans that this thing happened to land in a completely or nearly completely uninhabited area. Ever since I was in like middle school or high school, there have always been, you know, stories about what the Tunguska explosion actually was. Uh, and know, certainly uh, later in comics, it will come up in various ways where they'll reveal, oh, that's what it really was when it comes up in later comics, such as... Uh, the ultimate nightmare comic that Warren Ellis wrote many years later. Ah, I, I was not aware of that one. Science fiction author David Brin in his book Earth posits that that was actually a micro black hole striking the Earth. That was uh, not a natural occurrence, but it was basically a time release death bomb that has been orbiting the inner core of our Earth uh, ever since and is eating up the Earth. Anyway, one way or the other. The Tunguska explosion, a little bit off, off topic there. Reed has gotten something from that crater that he has been able to use to turn into a rocket fuel. That well, should he, be able says, to... he suspects that the Soviets have gotten a rocket fuel from their crater, and so he goes to an American crater to get his ah, own right. similar thing. I've long suspected that they developed their powerful rocket thrust by utilizing the energy of the burned-out meteor, so I recently explored an American meteor crater in Arizona to satisfy myself. I yes. brought back pieces of the meteorite uh, to the lab with me for intensive study. And then he found, okay, this is a way to make rocket fuel that will help us beat the commies in the race to the moon. Yes. Um, once again, once again, Sue is particularly concerned with this. She says, this means America may win the space race, which, first of all, she seems kind of unsure about. Like, she seems to be assuming up until this moment, she seemed to have assumed that the commies would make it to the moon before we would. 
It seems so silly to think about it now, looking back, but they beat us into space. They beat us into orbit. They were the first ones to put a satellite up. You know, they really were ahead of us for a lot of that was, period of time. I was explaining to my kids the other day, like, the Soviet Union put a satellite into space, and then Americans said, now we will put a satellite into space. And then the Soviet Union put uh, put animals up into space, and then Americans said, now we will put animals into space. And then the Soviet Union put a man up into space, and we said, now we will put a man up into space. And then the Soviet Union put a woman up into space, and America said, yeah, we're good. <laughs> yeah, no, that, sound, that sounds about right. So like, uh, we'll, we'll let you have that. We'll let you just sit on that particular uh, that that particular record for another thirty years or so. Um, we're not going to be putting any women up into space anytime soon. So Reed says that he is going to be going to the moon, and Thing in particular, and the rest of the uh, Fantastic Four in general, all are like, you know, what are you talking about? You're going to take us with you. Of course, now he's worried about their safety. He wasn't <laughs> the first time around, apparently. But I mean, you know, give him credit. He realized he screwed up last time, and now he doesn't want to make the same mistake this time. But they all make it clear they want to go. Thing shoves him into some kind of a like pneumatic tube or something like that to, to make his point. Meanwhile, behind the Iron Curtain on the other side of the globe, we see a uh, Russian scientist who is training some apes to do various stuff. And he's referring to them as like my monstrous slave. <laughs> Just like, you, don't have, you don't have to treat them that badly, dude. He does because he's a communist. Yes, yes. Only a genius such as I, Ivan Kragoff, could have trained a gorilla to operate a spaceship. There's the blue light. Quickly put on your magnetic shoes. And then he says, at last, my crew of apes is ready. And now we go to the moon to claim it for the communist empire. And so then we have this neat little sequence where the Fantastic Four and Kragoff and his apes are each loading into their own separate vehicles, you know, space vehicles on opposite sides of the planet. And they both blast off at the same moment and they're going up. So meanwhile, we find out that Kragoff has made his spaceship transparent because I get that's supposed to let more of the cosmic rays through, which, okay, sure. Because he wants himself and the four apes to... Three apes. More. Yes, the three apes. Well, he's an ape. Right. Oh, true. Yeah. Technically. <laughs> so he wants the four of them, him and his three apes, to all get superpowers like the Fantastic Four did. So we have a fantastic looking panel on the bottom of page five as they're getting bathed in the cosmic rays, where Kragoff is in this high chiaroscuro look as he's getting bathed in this stuff and just has a mad look on his face. It's really the best of Kirby and Dicko. Kirby and Dicko's strengths really coming together. I, yeah. I'm a much bigger fan of Dicko's inks on this book than I was when he inked Kirby and the Hulk. I think that they have learned how to work together here, and they are really bringing out their best. And you've got a lot of Dicko's heavier blacks combined with Kirby's excellent pencils. And this is this panel is an example of how it's really working well. Then we go into part two. We're back to chapters in this one. I don't think we've been doing that every every issue recently, have we? I don't remember. I don't think so. But uh, so we're on to part two, Menace on the Moon. Fantastic Four becomes aware of this other spaceship that's approaching. Johnny has some sort of gizmo that allows him to carry a little bit of artificial atmosphere around with him so we can flame on out into space. 
he approaches the Soviet ship, which has a big hammer and sickle on it, and sees that he's able to see through the entire thing, you know, once again, to get more cosmic rays. And then so he sees inside as the scientist is disappointed that it seems like these apes have not gotten any superpowers until it turns out they very clearly have. So one of them is super strong. Another one can change his physical form. And what does the other one do? Magnetic powers, I believe. Of course. Always got to have magnetic powers. Yes. And so, and of course, then he's able to use his magnetic powers to repel Johnny from their ship, which that's how magnets work, right? Yes. Well, you know, I think that some philosopher once asked magnets, how do they work? Yes. One of our finest philosophers. (laughs) Yes. So anyway, he comes back into the ship and warns them, and then they land on the moon at the blue area of the moon. So, Matt, you have talked about how they will just sort of throw world building stuff in here just willy nilly. Oh, yeah. The the blue area of the moon, the old dead civilization whose life support system is still active. That's on the moon. That's that blue area we've always wondered about. Yes. This okay. is amazing. <laughs> this is just amazing work. It just, we're on page nine and we've got a lot going on in this issue. And then suddenly it's like, oh, yeah, this is the abandoned city on the surface of the moon where you can breathe. And they're not that surprised by it. And it is, it says, and there's the reason why it photographs blue. There's a long dead city below us, the remains of some ancient civilization. Man isn't first on the moon. And it is just crazy. And this is before we meet the watcher. Not a, the watcher this is not the watcher's city he did not build the city i've always loved in fiction anything where there's like who built the city we'll never know it's an ancient city and you know you've got this amazing science fiction being living there who could have presumably built something like this but didn't it's all very mysterious it's wonderful yeah and i don't think they've well i mean they probably have at some point but i i I am not aware of them ever really giving any sort of explanation as to the builders of this uh, of this city, uh, even though we, we've had many, many other important moments in Marvel history that take place in this location. But I don't remember them ever talking about, you know, actually finding out who built the city and what happened to them. No, um, they probably have at some point, but we'll see. So anyway, they get out and they're walking around in the blue area of the moon and they're trying to scout things out thing runs into the shape-changing ape who had changed into the shape of a rock and then he's uh attacked by all the apes and then the red ghost comes at him and it turns out that the red ghost can make himself completely immaterial actually is he invisible as well he's sort of he's sort of half visible they can see it seems like they can kind of see him even though he's drawn as being the same color as the background but i think he's he's definitely immaterial and sort of invisible and you know, it's interesting that in this first appearance, the red ghost isn't red. He's not wearing a red outfit in He's later not appearances. Red later. No, in, I remember in, no. The, in the 80s, in the 80s, there was an issue of Spider-Man where the red ghost showed up and he was just wearing the same green proletarian jumpsuit the whole time. And I remember as a kid in like the mid 80s, you know, I mean, yeah, the Cold War was definitely still a thing, but it's not like we really would talk about the Reds. And I was just like, why is this guy called the Red Ghost, but he's wearing a green jumpsuit? I remembered him wearing red in that issue of American Spider-Man. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Did I, did I just say American? I remember, him wearing, I remember him wearing red in that issue of Amazing Spider-Man. I'm going to look it up right now. What, oh, okay. What issue? What it was like two twenty something or something. You you have always been way better at remembering issue numbers than me. 
I do not know. But I'm pretty sure it was a John Romita Jr. Cup. You can look that up. Meanwhile, Thing is trying to beat him, but he is able to be all ghostly. And then we see the shapely calves of somebody <laughs> who comes up. And this is going to be the Watcher, although we don't know that yet. And is able to immobilize the apes with some sort of mysterious energy. And then we get to part three, the Watcher appears. No, I'm sorry. I'm looking at Amazing Spider-Man 223 right now. It's hard to tell on the cover because they're they're being hit by Spider-Man's spider signal. But no, you go on the inside and he is wearing red. He is wearing the same outfit, but now it's red with blue gloves and boots. Um, okay. Which makes so much more sense that the red ghost would be wearing red. But yes, yes. he is wearing green in the actual book. Yes. And he's wearing uh, green here in Fantastic Four number 13. He's wearing green. Yes. And I guess that at the time, it was just that red was automatically understood to mean a communist. Yes. So uh, meanwhile, okay, so in your copy, Matt, what color is the Watcher's skin in this issue? It is pale yellow. Yeah. I don't think he's supposed to be Asiatic, even though that is the color they would use for that. I think it's just supposed to be he is an alien. And as they would always point out, they have very few colors available to them. And yeah. uh, he eventually will become someone who looks more Caucasian. And then, of course, in the recent What If series, he will be someone who looks African-American because he was played by an African-American. And they decided to go ahead and make him somewhat African-American in the most recent series. But he will appear Caucasian for most of his life. But in this one, he looks yellow, but without the exaggerated Asian features, which they often would have for characters that were colored this color of yellow. Although I, I don't know if the character, the Watcher, could actually be called African-American. Uh, yes. Well, that's <laughs> a problem. It's a problem saying, yes, no. not Fine. Black. Capital B, black. All right. I'm of an older generation that was trained. It was wrong to say black, and you should always say African-American. And I realize that that is now out of favor, partially because it is ridiculous to call the Watcher African-American. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I, I remember back when I went to elementary school, the term of uh, preference was still Afro-American, actually, which was... Um, you are and- old. I am. I am quite old. Uh, it, it fell out of fashion very quickly, which is probably why you don't remember that. Because no, like that three was, years later, it was not a not, thing anymore. I do not remember Afro-American. I am old, but I am not that old. By the way, uh, you were saying that he looks more Caucasian. I do not prefer the term Caucasian, partially because I actually know people from the Caucasus. And <laughs> you know, sometimes I've talked about there's Georgia and then there's the country of Georgia. And I used to refer to it as Soviet Georgia, but it's not Soviet anymore. So then I'm like, oh, you can just make it clear by saying Caucasian Georgia. No, (laughs) that would also have problems. So uh, I prefer Melanin Challenge. I don't like that either. So the Watcher appears and he has gathered up all of the apes and these techno magic bubble things. And he then goes and uses some sort of power to go and get the red ghost out of hiding. He talks a little bit about his origin and who the Watchers are, but we get a lot more filled in later. I don't remember if they've ever gone back and talked about the whole thing about his home planet being a vast, gigantic computer. Is that something oh, you're... Well, I mean, the, I feel like one of the one of my favorite pieces of Marvel Comics trivia is Tales of Suspense eventually becomes an Iron Man Captain America book. Before Captain America takes over this back half of the book, what long-term Marvel character was starring in the back half of that book? 
Oh yeah, it was the Watcher. It was the Watcher. It was Tales of the Watcher. This is my one of my favorite pieces of Marvel trivia. There was, and some of them was like an anthology of him hosting tales about other things. But some of it is actually Tales of the Watcher. You find out yeah. more about his race and more about everything. And that is, I would say, the most forgotten Marvel series of all time is Tales of the Watcher in the back of Tales of Suspense for about six months or so. Which goes yeah, for a while. So we're going to find out a lot more about the Watcher later. Yes, yes. But right now we learn that their uh, home planet is a gigantic computer and their people roam the entire known universe watching and observing other worlds, describing all of these crazy things that they've seen. And uh, worst of all, we have seen once noble races turn savage and warlike with the passing of time. A fate which your own foolish breed seems headed for. But during all the ages, we have done nothing but watch. Never have we interfered. Never have we made our presence known. So, of course, as we talked about in a recent episode, the Cuban Missile Crisis had pretty much just happened. And so I'm guessing that this is what Stan had in mind as he was writing yes. this particular um dialogue but then the watcher says but now i have broken the silence of centuries in order to save your people from savagery so i feel like this is the first real book we've had in which you know it's interesting that the soviets aren't stealing the technology to get to the moon here that the soviets are not in any way plotting against the americans even that the soviets are just shown as genuinely a technologically advanced people who are genuinely made it to the moon and genuinely yes want to have fantastic four powers but not to attack with not to attack the fantastic four they have no idea the fantastic four is going to be there and then the watcher we're sort of taking the view of the watcher in this issue who's like you guys are involved in a foolish war and that's this is the first time we've really had the sense in a marvel comic that this is a foolish war that this is something where there might be folly on both sides and that the soviet side is not inherently inferior now it is in that he is enslaving his apes and reed richards does not enslave the fantastic four and that's shown as being a definite moral difference between the two and kragoff is clearly the worst but he's not as bad as he could be. And the Watcher doesn't seem to take any notice of this. The Watcher is not going like, okay, clearly Reed Richards is a lot better person than Kragoff. The Watcher is like, what fools you mortals be? And we're sort of on the side of the Watcher here. Yeah, we will see a lot more veering into anti-militarism as the course of the Marvel Universe unfolds in the next several years. Up until now, we've had mainly height of the Cold War uh, and I don't know whether you'd want to call it paranoia or what, but just very, very much about like, you know, the Reds this, the communists that. That at this point, even though, as you said, we have a communist villain here who is very much a villain, the big problem is that you're all going to kill each other. And, you know, once again, the missile crisis had just happened. And, you know, everybody, I think, felt like we just all got by by the skin of our teeth. Yeah. I remember, I think I mentioned this on an earlier episode, but, you know, I know that dad has talked about how he was on a, a Boy Scout camp out during the Cuban Missile Crisis and that he was actually having visions of nuclear bombs going off in the distance, literally sort of like, oh, my God, is this it? And yeah. um, it seems like that did something to read here, too. I mean, to read, to, uh, to Stan here, too. Yeah. It's fascinating how much, like, the most famous Marvel comic ever set in the blue area of the moon is X-Men number 137, which was yes. the death of Dark Phoenix issue. And it's fascinating, you know, having read that comic so many times because it's such an important comic. I always forget when I reread this comic how many elements of that comic are set up here, including yeah. I'm going to pick you up and put you in these transparent bubbles. I am now going to have two sides 
fight out a war to determine who should ultimately come out on top. He does that with the Kree and the Skrulls in X-Men 137. And even the idea that there are buried weapons in the blue area of the moon that can then be brought to life to attack somebody, that ends up being how Dark Phoenix dies in X-Men 137. She raises up a forgotten weapon buried in the blue area of the moon to kill herself with. So it's fascinating how much of that issue is set up here. Well, yeah, and a little bit later in the issue, we're going to have some kind of view screen that the Watcher's face appears on. And that view screen is used also in that issue of X-Men you're talking about when uh, Wolverine somehow got into the Watcher's house. And he's basically saying, hey, Wolverine, get the hell out of here, and then, you know, uh, kicks him out. But it's that same look of that screen and the way the face looks in that screen. Uh, oh, right. Well. It's what well, they even recreate. Then after that, the next four panels are also recreated with Wolverine suddenly going through a swamp with a dinosaur and then right. a dying planet with fire and then being kicked out through the suddenly transparent wall. That's all done with Wolverine in that book and is taken directly from what happens to the Red Ghost here in this comic. Yeah. But meanwhile, on page 15, at the beginning of part four, Duel in the Dead City, that is just a fantastic establishing shot of them in these old ruins. You know, it looks simultaneously high tech and utterly ancient and alien. And, and once again, this is another place where Kirby and Ditko are really sort of playing to each other's strengths here. I agree. Uh, just fantastic stuff. They are having a battle with the Red Ghost and his apes because that's what they are made to do. And one turns himself into an asbestos sheet, of course, and then the of super course. strong ape flings thing and uh, does some other stuff. What happens with Invisible Girl? Oh, that's right. Because magnetism will um, apparently just magnetically attach a human body to something. The magnetic ape then is somehow binding Sue to his back because magnets. So Sue gets kidnapped. She gets put in a cell. The Red Ghost leaves her in there. Sue then, to her credit, instantly figures out how to rip the wall panel up and monkey around in there, no pun intended, free herself, <laughs> free the apes. She figures out that the apes are more sinned against than sinning here. And she frees the apes, so then the Red Ghost is fighting the rest of the team. We talked before about how the Red Ghost gets in trouble with the Watcher and gets kicked out. Sue comes up and says, I turn the apes against him. We're going to win. And then the Watcher, at this point, in one of many, many times in Marvel Comics where somebody claims that they're out of the story, and then it turns out they're very much not out of the story. He says, the contest is over. You have triumphed, and my mission too is at an end. Now that mankind has reached the moon, I must go to a more distant part of the galaxy to observe you mortals from afar. Four-way watchers must be ever aloof, ever apart from other races. Of course, this turns out not to be true. He quickly realizes that relocating is a bitch, and it's... <laughs> <laughs> Much like the best nest, it's always better when you're looking for some place to move to. You'll always realize that it's better to just stay where you're at. So the Watcher will continue to be based in the Blue Area of the Moon for many years to come. Yes, and I don't think they even ever address that whole deal with him saying he's going to have to move somewhere else, right? They just next time they see him, he's still there. We've learned not to say that. Yes, uh, well, apparently not. <laughs> Apparently, I haven't learned that. I, I don't learn too easy. Fantastic Four takes off, but I think they end up stranding the Red Ghost and the Super Apes there, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I mean, the Red Ghost and the Super Apes still have their rocket, but at this point, the apes are more interested in chasing after the Red Ghost, who is running away from them. But I don't think they're really stranded there, because they don't go and wreck their rocket or anything. True. If the Red Ghost and the apes ever reach a rapprochement, their rocket <laughs> will still be waiting for them to take them home. Showing off your $10 words there. That's uh... <laughs> 
rapprochement. <laughs> rapprochement. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Matt's always the one to bring the snooty English major flair podcast. I am wearing an increasingly small beret with every month, just like just like Johnny's villains are doing. Is it matched with an increasingly large scarf? Yes. <laughs> yeah, this is a momentous issue in many ways. Red Ghost is a pretty minor villain. I mean, he will remain in the Marvel Universe indefinitely. He's relatively minor, but the Watcher and the Blue Area of the Moon are two things that will become quite important in what we're doing. And yes, as you pointed out, to those of you who mainly know stuff through the MCU, you have just been introduced to the Watcher. And that wasn't the first time we'd seen the Watcher, by the way, in the MCU. Yes, he shows up briefly in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and that you see a group of Watchers standing around listening to Stan Lee telling them something, which then led to a fan theory that Stan Lee is a Watcher, and that he was going undercover in each of the previous movies, pretending to be a bystander so that he could observe what was going on. And so all of the Stan Lee cameos were actually the same character who was actually one of the Watchers observing all of those events. I, I buy it. I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> I think that can be my new headcanon. Sure. Yeah. But yeah. often in those comics, he is very much not observing, but he is very much playing an unobserving character. But it's all it's all part of his cover. He's got to appear to be a Stanley-esque buffoon in these issues in order to hide his cover that he is a Watcher. And then he reports back to the rest of the Watchers in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Yeah. But I think this is one of many times in the Marvel Universe that they decided, oh, we're so full of ideas here at Marvel, we'll just take a massive part of our mythology and turn it into a one-off gag. And then later they were like, no, 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 we actually can get a whole show out of that. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's like in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, somebody saw Adam Warlock's cocoon in the collector's stuff. And now Adam Warlock is going to be in the next Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Well, as I think I mentioned before, in the first Thor movie, they're going through the the treasures in Asgard, and one of them is the Infinity Colon. And uh, they later realized... <laughs> They later realized, like, whoops, we uh, we don't want to do that. So, And then later they had to cover that up by having Loki see that again in the third movie and go, ah, it's a fake. <laughs> okay, so shall we move on to Journey into Mystery, number 91? Yes. This is the first of a couple or three issues here we get drawn entirely by Joe Sinnott. Drawn who, uh, and inked by Sinnott. Yes. Who goes on to be, you know, one of the most consequential, one of the most important inkers of the silver and bronze age, basically, of Marvel, basically the 60s and 70s and maybe into the mid 80s. When I went back and started reading these and I started seeing these issues that he drew and inked, I'm really impressed. He's a good artist. He is. He, well, he would write and draw Marvel comics in the 50s and he was always very good. And, you know, I do think that ultimately he is a better inker than he is a penciler. Of course, I've always said that the greatest tragedy in Marvel history is that Senat does not ink Kirby's Thor. He inks the very first issue of Kirby's Thor and then never again. Oh, again, that's going to prove to be wrong, I'm sure, but right. not that I remember ever again. And so we have this great tragedy that he does not ink these issues. But of course, then you get these three odd issues that he both pencils and inks while Kirby is gone. And it is beautiful stuff. It is so much better than our Hartley last issue. It is nice looking stuff. It's not as good as Synod on Kirby, 
I would say, is it better than Arizona Kirby? I would say maybe it's not better than Arizona Kirby. It is in that territory, at least. And it is a nice comic. Yeah. So, but this cover, I'm pretty sure, is Kirby and Ayers, if I'm not mistaken. It, it, that's what it looks like to me, but I have That certainly, that Loki's face certainly looks like Kirby. So we begin with Odin talking about, oh, I've got this belt of strength for Thor if he ever needs it, but I'm sure that's not going to come up. And, and by this the way, is definitely... Odin's, Odin's hat is the least fabulous hat he is ever <laughs> going to wear. I, I yes. will stand by that one. I will make an absolute <laughs> decision on that one. This is the least fabulous hat ever. And a, at least according to the coloring, I don't know if Senna intended this, he's wearing a tiny little hat, a tiny little helmet, a cape, and no shirt. So it's very yep. rare we see shirtless Odin. So then we get to something that Kirby just doesn't do. We see Thor is flying around, and we begin in medias res, and a bank is floating up in the air, and Thor is wondering what to do about it. And then we cut to... So now we must go back a few days to the time Dr. Blake and his lovely nurse returned from their office for a house call. So we begin with current day, and then we go back to a flashback, which is something that Kirby never really did when he was, let's face it, mostly potting the book. So then we see that... At some point in the past, Don Blake and Jane Foster went to a carnival. They saw a fortune teller named Sandu. Now, presumably, Loki in Asgard is just always peering down on Don Blake to see what mischief he can pull. And he sees that Don Blake is looking at this psychic, and he says, okay, now I will go ahead and increase that psychic's powers by a thousand times. And so then Sandu, as soon as he gets his powers increased by a thousand times, he starts stealing from everybody. He lifts that bank in the air and steals all the money in it and transports everybody who is in it back. We are now back up. And so it says, and so we return to the present. Turns out Sandu has been teleporting all these buildings to the moon in sort of a nice spooky image. Second time this month already that we've had someone go to the moon, or at least some American stuff go to the moon. I think this may be the first time in Marvel Comics that someone has threatened the United Nations building, which will frequently get threatened. Sandu makes the UN building rise. Don Blake finally turns into Thor to go fight him. Sandu wraps the chain around him, puts him in a pit, drops a whole building on him. We also see this on the cover. I guess we didn't read the cover. We usually read the covers, but uh, we, we usually do, do that. That's fine. He puts him in there. Luckily, here comes Odin, who's like, oh, I, so for the first time we see Valkyries. Odin sends Valkyries down with the belt of strength to put it on Thor. Thor now is strong enough that he can break out. He goes ahead and fights Sandu. And now I always like it when these issues have clever resolutions, when the hero has to come to some clever way of getting out of this. Unfortunately, Thor, I feel like, frequently comes up short on that. Frequently, we get non-clever resolutions on Thor, I guess, because Thor is sort of a uh, himbo who isn't big on the clever solutions. But in this case, Sandu is just defeated because he suddenly decides he's going to pick up the hammer, which, of course, he can't do. And he uses up all his powers trying to pick up the hammer. And then he's powerless, and Thor is able to force him to return everything back to the way it was. Or I guess he doesn't even have to. It just says, when Sandu lost his mental powers, all his feats were undone. Everything is now as it was before. Oh, noble Odin. And Odin says, the belt of strength served you well. I hope you have no need of it again, but if you do, it is yours. So we've got Deus Ex Machina set up to be in perpetuity. We then cut back to Loki, who is, you know, Loki never actually came to Earth. Loki has been doing all this from his prison on Asgard, magnifying Sandu's powers. Then Loki is now saying, that brainless mortal, if he had not tried to lift the hammer, Thor might have been defeated, but I shall still find a way to defeat Thor, for I have all eternity in which to scheme the end. This is going to be a bit of a theme for Loki going forward, taking hapless mortals on Earth and turning them into his cat's paws to attack Thor. 
Uh, we're later going to see this with the Absorbing Man. I believe we see this with the Wrecker, too. Isn't, isn't yeah. he also? A, so anyway, this is a thing th that Loki will be doing going forward. And this is really the first time we've seen it. Another thing I want to talk about is how I really do like Sinnott's work in here. But it does not look a lot like Sinnott's inking that we get when he comes back with a vengeance inking Kirby five years later. No, um, I would agree. Particularly page four really strikes me just how much black he puts down on the page. Just something about it just has, I, I really, really like it. Sinnott's a great inker later too, but this just does not look like his later style. And uh, I was struck by that. The other thing mm -hmm. I wanted to point out is just because he's such a good inker, he comes up with a really great effect for Sandu's powers. There's this sort of cross-hatching glow effect that comes off of him that seems to represent his use of his powers. That seems very much in Sinnott's wheelhouse in terms of his artistic tools. Yeah. On page four, where he's drawing this very heavy-browed Sandu with this pointed, crooked nose that is casting a heavy shadow on the rest of his face, it looks like Alex Raymond to me. That looks like an Alex Raymond-esque yeah. nose. That looks like an Alan Raymond-esque heavy brushwork. It looks like it's being inked with a big, fat brush instead of any pen being involved. And I it, always think of Sinnott as, especially you know, in the 80s when we knew him, as just being an all-brush guy. Uh, I, I never really thought of him as using any pen. I guess not. Certainly this issue seems to be done entirely with brush. does not seem to have any pen involved. This is a nice issue. It is hurt by the fact that it does not have any sort of cleverness. And certainly Odin giving him the belt is a straight-up deus ex machina. Well, very literally, it literally. does not have <laughs> any element of cleverness to it. But Sandu is good enough for a good one-off villain. Could have him ultimately fighting Loki and coming up with ways for him to fight Loki that are different from other ways he's fought Loki. It's a nice book. So uh, let's move on to Strange Tales. Strange Tales, number 107. The epic battle which you demanded. The Human Torch versus the Mighty Submariner. Facing each other in a breathtaking saga of fire against water. This one is the big one. So one thing that's important in Marvel, I don't know what you call it, history or prehistory. <laughs> Basically the old timely comics uh, in the 40s. Marvel had really the first big, high-profile crossover of their different superheroes before any other companies were really doing that. And it was this giant-sized, spectacular issue of the Golden Age Human Torch fighting the Submariner. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure that in the book Cavalier and Clay, there is a scene where Cavalier and Clay are among the different artists who have been recruited to help desperately draw this thing over the course of like one week that they've been given or something like that. Do you remember that? Is, is that? No, something? I don't. I, I read that book, but not not. But it was a long time ago. I don't remember that. I haven't read it in a while either. That's why I'm not entirely sure. But that's my memory, at least, is that there's a sequence in there where they have all these young comics artists are sitting around in this one little tiny apartment. One of the artists actually with a drawing board on his thighs sitting in the bathtub just because that's the only place he could get room. <laughs> I mean, the, the the way the story goes is that they, uh, Burgos and or Everett, the creators of the two characters, pitched this to one of the folks. I don't know if it would have been directly to Goodman or what, and was told, OK, yeah, you know what? That's a good idea. I need the pages by Monday. <laughs> you know? yeah. And, you know, it's supposed to be like a 64 page thing. And they're like, uh. So anyway, this is in some ways a reference back to that, even though this is a different human torch. 
So this is really the first time in the Strange Tales Johnny Storm feature where they've actually let him play in the big sandbox. They've actually let him take on one of the big FF villains instead of being stuck with Pacepot Pete. <laughs> and it's such a strange story. It is just... Oh, yeah. I mean, it will, I'll let you go ahead and sum it up here, but then I'll jump in and talk about how strange <laughs> it is. Okay, so Johnny sees the rest of the Fantastic Four all getting into a car for a drive. Turns out they're once again going into New York to talk about plots with Stanley and Jack Kirby. Johnny wants to go along with them, and they're like, you got yourself into enough trouble last week. I think you can sit this one out, basically. Oh, wait, was Sue not going with them to the Baxter building? I guess not. I guess she was just seeing them off to the car. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So anyway, she stays behind. So Thing and Reed go off to talk to them. So he then notices once again this photo, the signed photo of the Submariner that Sue has. And he just thinks, you know what? If I want to get some respect around here, I need to make it myself. So I'm going to fly out and I'm just going to pick a fight with the Submariner. Which seems like a really dumb idea. But, you know, he is a teenager, so... What you gonna do? Yeah. So he flies out. Sue sees him go and just says, "Oh well, boys will be boys. I guess he's gonna go work on his hot rod." In the earlier days, Johnny would often have issues with his flame only lasting so long, and this is one case where he was being sort of young and reckless and dangerous with it because he was way out at sea when he runs out of power. So he has to land, fortunately, on a passing ship that happens to be going by. So then he lands, and they're like, "Hey, we got a stowaway," and he's like, "I'm the Human Torch." They're like, "Oh yeah, then flame on." He's like, "They can't." right now so then they put him to work swabbing the deck (laughs) until they end up getting in a fog bank and he is at that point able to flame back on and light the way for the ship he then goes ahead and creates flaming letters in the sky above the sea saying namor human torch challenges you and of course the ocean is vast so (laughs) who knows how this thing would actually get close enough to him for him to see it But there is a flying fish that happens to jump out and get its wing singed on the flame. And then Submariner sees that and says, "Uh oh, what's going up on the surface? He comes up and basically doing the, hey, you kids, get off of my lawn look there on the bottom of page five. (laughs) He says, I'd make him rue the day he was born, but if I harm him, it will only grieve Sue. So because he doesn't want to upset Sue, he doesn't want to fight him. Right. One of the things also that I find interesting about this is that he had not yet lapsed into his sort of regal, almost Thor-like speech patterns that you'll get later. So, you know, later he'll be like, I, the avenging son, the prince of the blood will do for my people and stuff like that. But this is, I haven't really read much of the Golden Age stuff, but from my understanding, this is much more like he would be in the Golden Age. Go on home, Sonny, before you get hurt. This is Prince Namor you're fooling with. And it's like, I'll beat you to a pulp. Just not the kind of thing that you're used to hearing him say later on in their career. So we do get, unfortunately, a couple of panels that you'll see shared a lot just because they're so silly on the bottom of page six, where Submariner uses the powers of a puffer fish because he has all the powers of all the creatures that live underneath the sea. I don't know how long they keep doing that, but it does still stick around for a little while after this every now and then when they need that to solve a problem. So he puffs himself up so that when he crashes into this iceberg, then he can then shrink himself back down and get out of it. Find some asbestos sitting around at the bottom of the sea, as well as some sort of old hypnotizing statue that he then comes up and uses against him. Punches Johnny. He then ties Johnny onto the back of a porpoise and tells the porpoise to head in the direction of his house. I guess once again, because he wants to make sure that 
Sue does not get mad at him for killing her little brother. So he gets himself free, uh, Johnny does, and comes back at Submariner. He's like, all right. On page 10, there's a panel uh, in the middle row that is one that I've seen shared. Actually, I thought this was something from the old Golden Age stuff when I'd seen this panel way back in the day, like when I was a kid. Johnny has fallen into the water. Submariner comes up and tries to grab him, but burns his fingers. And Johnny, under the water, says, says, underwater. Too bad you didn't know that even when I can't flame on, I can still be plenty hot. So he's talking underwater there. Um, Yes. And then, you know, oftentimes Johnny can be doused by just the smallest amount of moisture. And yet at this point, says now because I wasn't submerged long enough to saturate my body too much. And because I keep my body heat high by sheer willpower, I can again flame on. And they'll just go back and forth and back and forth with this. There's one point later when Plant Man puts out his flames by smothering him in moist nuts. Which, <laughs> um, yeah. So, but here he like is burning so hot that he is actually still staying aflame underwater by, I guess, keeping an envelope of steam around him. I'm not entirely sure. There's this, this sequence is a little bit weird, but one way or the other, he basically ends up somehow burying Submariner under the seabed. Then Johnny gets back up to the surface. He's rescued by that same ship that he had landed on earlier. Yeah, once he's buried him, that's good enough for Johnny. And he says, I guess that'll prove once and for all who's the strongest. And now I've got to reach the surface while I can. So I don't think that he really thinks that he's killed Submariner. I don't think that he really, you know, certainly he hasn't gotten the Submariner to admit that Johnny is superior in any way. I think Human Torch was just like, look, man, I've done all I need to do today. This is good enough. I'm going home. I'm exhausted. And then you have the sort of thing where a gag that I've seen a million times in various ways that Sue gets back home from some trip that she had out and sees him just taking a nap in the middle of the day in his room. And last thing she had seen was he was just going out to play on his hot rods as far as she knew. And so she's like, you know, dozing in the middle of the day. Hmm, I didn't know that monkeying around with hot rods could be so exhausting. She's like, sister, you don't know the half. So, you know, the whole thing about somebody's just done some incredible stuff, and then all you see is them resting afterwards. And yeah. I think it's an interesting issue in that it is a uh, echoing back to that really momentous first big crossover that really ever happened in superhero comics. But overall, it's, you know, I mean, the Strange Tales Human Torch stories are, it's in line with the rest of those. I think that he's trying to make a case here that he can play in the adult sandbox and that he can go ahead and borrow major Fantastic Four characters. But it's such an odd little story, and it's so out of character, not so much for Johnny, but just for any Marvel hero to just pick a fight, pick an inconsequential fight. It's ultimately a forgettable story. Okay, so let's forget about it, and let's move on to our next issue. In my notes, I said, this is the first time Torch gets to take on a big Fantastic Four villain, period. Book still never justifies its own existence, period. (laughs) Um, tough, but fair. <laughs> tough, All right. but fair. <laughs> so now we move on to Tales of Suspense number 40, featuring America's newest superhero sensation, Iron Man. And we see Iron Man, who is now gold, and he will turn gold in this issue. He only stays gray for one and a half issues here. Uh, and then he turns gold, and later he'll be red and gold. Yes. Now, it's interesting that the Hulk also starts off gray in his first issue and then uh-huh. turns a different color in his second issue. But there, they just go like, oh, you know, that was just a coloring mistake in the first issue. He was always supposed to be green. Later, they'll have flashbacks where they'll color them green. This is not the case here. They make it very clear that 
Iron Man makes a very deliberate decision here to not be gray anymore and to now become gold for reasons within the story. So as you were saying, I was dead wrong. This issue is drawn by Jack Kirby. It is yeah. drawn by Kirby and inked by Heck, which maintains a little bit of continuity with the last issue in terms of Heck's inking, creating some visual continuity. It is fascinating to see Kirby then take over from Heck, taking cues from Heck, who did the first issue, and then Kirby presumably doing some of the plotting here as well. This is also, we've got plot by Scan Lee, script by R. Burns, who shows up here and there for the next year or so. You know, I get the feeling that Stan was realizing he couldn't do all of this work for forever and, you know, really maintain the quality of Fantastic Four, which is clearly now his baby, and some of the other stuff here. And I think he was casting around for somebody who could help. And this seems like a guy, I mean, I don't know, it could be a pseudonym for somebody else, for all I know. I'm not sure. But, you know, he was using Larry Lieber a little bit. There, I know there will be a, uh, an Iron Man issue in like a year or two that is scripted by someone I never heard of before and never hear of again, where the dialogue is just utterly terrible. But it takes him a while to finally come up with Roy Thomas, who will finally be the one he was looking for. Who can actually write dialogue that is almost like Stan's, that yes. is, can almost pass for Stan dialogue. So in this issue, we begin on the cover. It says, Tales of Suspense featuring America's newest superhero sensation, Iron Man. Iron Man is fighting a giant Neanderthal caveman type with a big club. His size alone does not worry me, but there is something else, some sinister secret behind the coming of Gargantus. So then in the comic, we begin with Tony Stark is... Once again, we begin with him giving weapons to the army. Once again, they are powered with transistors. In this case, he is fitting a whole army platoon with skate key roller skates. With actual roller skates, you click onto your boots with a skate key and says they can be clamped on the solo boot with an ordinary skate key. But where these skates differ from toys lies in the fact that they have tiny transistor-powered engines to drive the skate wheels. And they go... Uh, infantry can now transport itself on highways without trucks. This will revolutionize troop movements. You're a military genius, Stark. So it says there's... <laughs> I mean, the safety issues alone. It's, it's, um, and the thing is, this goes on to be a thing for a while. Like, Iron Man ends up using these skates before they sort of decide, okay, you know what, he can just fly. You know, they always play this sort of thing like, ah, he can kind of use some air pressure jets to kind of jump short distances but they're like oh well if you need to get from one city to another city nope he's gonna be using these rocket roller skates that he's got and uh, but i remember he still had the skates in the 80s in the mccoyne latent issues he still occasionally would bust out the skates you know what? so You're right yeah so it says that anthony stark's man leads three lives so the first is he's a military inventor the second we see him romancing a girl seemingly on the riviera and then she wants to go skinny dipping she says swimming but it's clearly skinny dipping with him and then we find out about he says he can't find out of his third life. So, you know, the whole idea that Iron Man is a big playboy is quickly shot down here because it turns out that Iron Man now has to wear the metal chest plate at all times and then plug it into a Can wall you socket. how much that must smell? Yes. yes. <laughs> so this is similar to the first movie, or really all three of his movies. He has to wear some part of the Iron Man armor there. They just had it be the little chest device at all times in order to keep the metal away from his heart. So then he plugs in. Meanwhile, we see him fighting as Iron Man. We see him fighting criminals. We see him fighting an evil scientist. We see him at the circus where some tigers get away. We then see for the first time that he can fit his suit even though his suit is huge at this point he can fit it inside a suitcase and you may go like well how would that work well i've got one word for you steve yeah what's that 
Transistors. Says. <laughs> well, you know, it's going to be either that or magnets. He says, everything, thanks to my knowledge of microscopic transistors, can be unfolded and elongated into many times its original carrying size. And he takes out his Iron Man armor, puts it on, fights the tigers, puts them away, then goes back to the girl. She says, we won't need the police, Tony. Iron Man handled the emergency. But I can't understand one thing. Why does he wear such a terrifying looking costume? He actually frightens people. He battles menaces like a hero in olden times. So if he's a modern knight in shining armor, why doesn't he wear a golden medal instead of that awful dull gray armor? And then he thinks that's a good idea. So he paints his suit gold. It's interesting that they don't turn it into a gold suit. He just, they make it clear it's still just an iron suit that is now painted gold. So the, then, we, so we now enter the Gilded Age. Yes, his costume is now gilded. He then flies home and expects her to fly home and meet him. She does not show up. He finds out it's because the town she's in is now surrounded by a wall and no one can get in and out. He then digs under the wall, goes there to the town, finds everybody in town has turned against him, of course, because that's what everybody in Marvel does. And they have now built a giant statue to Gargantus, a caveman-type villain who they now all worship. Mighty as Gargantus, long live Gargantus. There's Iron Man. Get him. A uh, major theme in Marvel history that has come up to mean something different in the last year. Iron Man topples the statue, knocks it over, destroys it. We then get the second time in two issues where he uses a little loudspeaker hooked up to his belt. He says, Gargantus, this is Iron Man. Gargantus, this is Iron Man. I challenge you to show yourself or be branded a coward before the people of Granville. Gargantus comes out. Gargantus also has hypnotism powers, fitting with the general problem of heroes who have no consistent theme. Villains. Yes, villains who have no consistent theme going on. And it's only going to get worse here. Uh, <laughs> Iron Man then throws up a bunch of magnets around him, figures out... Does Iron Man figure out why these magnets will work. So he sees that there's heavy clouds that have been over the town the entire day. And then he uses a flag to see if there's any breeze. Now, why he has to rip the flagpole out of the building in order to see whether there's a breeze has no explanation whatsoever. He finds that there is a breeze. So then he doesn't explain it to the reader yet. We have to get this explained to us later. But essentially, since wind is blowing, but these clouds have been stationary overhead the whole time, he then concludes, well, the only possible explanation is that there's a flying saucer up there that is controlling Gargantus, which is actually a robot. So I'd forgotten, first, we have our second statue destroyed here. We actually see Gargantus clearly destroy a Civil War statue. <laughs> <laughs> which is a major theme. So Iron Man has seemingly figured out that Gargantus is a robot. He uses a bunch of magnets to tear Gargantus apart. He then shows that there is a flying saucer with aliens in it inside the cloud. <laughs> they decide, bah, in all the marvels, they talk about how many times the word bah is used. Bah, we must report to our planet that our visit here was a failure. This planet has changed since our ancestors exported 80,000 years ago. It is no longer peopled by creatures like Carcantus. So then they decide, we only know how to rule a planet of cavemen. We're going to take off. So then it says, there goes the saucer. Let's hope they've been frightened off for good. So, and indeed, one of many, many one appearance only aliens we have early on yeah. in this comic. And then, what, do, do we ever get a name for this alien race? I don't think no, we do. I don't do think we? we ever even do. Because I don't know whether you saw, but I, after the last episode, went ahead and looked up the scroll like aliens that were in that Al Hartley drawn issue of Thor. 
And they showed back up in a 1988 issue of X Factor. Also then showed up in John Byrne's sensational She-Hulk series in the early 90s. And then they were apparently used in the Runaways TV show, which my family all watched together. So (laughs) even those guys showed up. So I wouldn't put it past any of these seemingly one-off races somehow showing up again at some point in the future. But these guys are not even named, and uh, they could not be more generic. So uh, I would not be surprised if they never show up again. Iron Man tears down the wall, and then he reunites with his girlfriend now that he's Tony Stark again. And she says, forgive me for standing you up yesterday, Tony, but a fantastic thing happened in Granville. Did you read about it in the papers? And he says, "Uh, no, I didn't have time. I was rather busy myself yesterday. And then he thinks, I sure was. I bet nobody ever worked so hard to find out what happened to his date. The end. (laughs) Yeah. Um... Those dames. Hypnotized by Neanderthal robots controlled by aliens. When our mom was here visiting uh, this weekend to see my daughter's play, she she said, you know, for some reason she was in the mood to finally see for the first time in her life some like it hot. So we rented it and watched it once again. You know, dames. Yeah. that's that's a great movie that's great that she got to finally watch that movie okay so this is a fairly weak issue you would think it would be a big deal to have kirby drawing iron man for the first and only time but he does not coat himself in glory here this is another issue where the alien menace has no consistent theme okay so it's you know little green aliens and a flying saucer controlling a robot in the shape of a caveman who has hypnotism powers who then builds a wall and enslaves the populace and it's all over the map and and, and, and ruins tony's date yeah ruins tony's day heck inking kirby is not ideal it's fine <laughs> you know it's not as good as airs it's not as good as some of the inkers kirby has had i don't know airs can be really uneven on kirby he can sometimes be pretty good but there are some issues where uh, where i would take this inking over some of the stuff that airs has done okay i do like tony stark does get a chance to wear an ascot which is nice. Yes. Pretty weak issue and interesting. I want to say one-off. I want to say this is the only time where Kirby draws Iron Man, but I've learned not to do that. Yes. Well, he would definitely will draw him in Avengers. We, we, we know yes. that. So let's go ahead and move on to Tales of Astonish number 42. Even Ant-Man could not resist the evil spell of the man with the voice of doom. Ant-Man, you cannot help yourself. You must do as I command. Plunge to your doom now. And Henry Pym is on the corner of a pier, and you can see actually a little nail that's stuck out of it to give pers- to give size perspective of how tiny he is. Too late to save yourself. I must obey his orders, although it means the end of Ant-Man. Too late. He says, you said too late to save yourself. Uh, why don't yeah. you read that again and say too late to save myself? Because that's what it says. It says too late to save myself. I must what? obey his orders, even though it means really? the end of Ant-Man. On this one, it actually literally says, too late to save yourself. I must obey his orders, although it means the end of Ant-Man. What? Why would they change that? That doesn't work. I know it doesn't. I'm looking at the original cover right here, and the original cover said, too late to save myself, exclamation point, exclamation point. I must obey his orders, although it means the end of Ant-Man. This is the original cover, and and this version (laughs) makes sense. (laughs) That's... That is utterly bizarre. Well, wow. right. okay. I gotta. I have to search the internet here and see if I can find both. <laughs> this is what it says: "Tales to Astonish 42 cover." What on earth? That's so strange. <laughs> 
how could that even happen? I almost wonder if it might be something where like they had the original art laying around and there was a paste up that they had done to fix something that said myself and then the glue, you know, you'll see this sometimes where the glue will dry up and little paste ups will fall off over time and that maybe it revealed the old incorrect one under there. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of at the moment. That is not impossible i am search i'm looking at tales to astonish 42 cover image search and every version that i'm seeing says myself i'm not seeing your version that says that well, says yourself but if, uh if you look at it on marvel unlimited that is what it says <laughs> okay that's bizarre all right <laughs> i'll quickly sum it up here so we begin once again we do something Kirby does not do. We begin with the story in Media Threats. We begin with this guy telling Ant-Man to jump off a pier, and then we go back in time, and we see this guy actually walking through town, carrying a soapbox and setting the soapbox down on the sidewalk to then stand on top of it and make a big speech. And they're like, never have I heard such a sincere voice. Then Ant-Man looks at him. I guess we have a flashback within a flashback here, because first we begin with the flashback already controlling Hank, and then we flashback to a little bit before that when Hank I first so. sees that he is controlling people in the town and then we jump back another couple weeks and we find that this guy was the world's worst radio announcer he was telling people to buy peppa dog food and no one would do it he sounds as convincing as a wet sponge then there is of course a nuclear accident there is an accident in a atomic experimental laboratory some ions go shooting off into the air land in the radio station hit the microphone you would think then he would have a magic microphone for the rest of the issue but no the microphone then gives him magic power so now he says, and remember that your dog knows the difference, so give it the best. Give it Peppo dog food. We get an intentionally funny little panel here where it has in suburbia that are listening to this and they go, hurry, let's run to the groceries and get some. We don't even have a dog, but we can eat it ourselves. <laughs> So then it turns out he is now the world's best hot dog salesman. And they're like, oh, we want to have you do more sales for us. And he's like, no, I quit. You know, he gets a free ride on a train saying, but my good man, today is Thursday, the day when all people carrying handkerchiefs with the initials JC are allowed to ride for free. And the engineer says, free, of course, you're right, sir. And then he just walks up to a woman's house and knocks on the door and says, I'm hungry. Prepare me a steak dinner at once. And she says, your voice, I cannot resist it. I must obey. And so then he is going around town and then he sees Ant-Man. Well, well, also, he, he decides at some point here as he goes around and does this, that he wants to have a much more eccentric look. So he then starts wearing like an ascot and, a, and growing a full beard. Only communists would wear a full beard in the early 60s. So anyway, but go on. Yes. So then he decides, oh, I must attack Ant-Man now. So um, he goes ahead and gets the whole city to turn against Ant-Man. Another recurring theme. I said we would never have the Ant-Man land on ants again. This is not the case of him shooting himself across town in a cannon, but he does land on some ants here for a second. He then hitches ride. We have our second appearance of shoes with skates attacked for the skate key. He hops on a boy's shoes. He is now being run out of town by everyone who is now working for this guy trying to catch Ant-Man. He finally does catch Ant-Man. Ant-Man falls prey to his voice, too. He orders Ant-Man to, as we saw on the cover, walk off a pier to his death. Then Ant-Man cannot do anything to save himself, but his ants voluntarily take it upon themselves to save Ant-Man. 
and they go ahead and save him. And then apparently taking the dip into the drink, goes ahead and breaks him of the hypnotic spell. He then goes home. And indeed, I was wrong. We do see, once again, a cutaway view of his little elevator setup and his catapult. We don't see him use the catapult. No. I'm still going to say, I'm still going to say he's never going to use the catapult again, but we do see the catapult. And we see him use the little mini elevator. So he goes home. He goes ahead and says, I know what I need to do. I need to go to a theatrical prop company. Get myself a prop gun. Now, there's no reason he couldn't have just used an actual gun for this. There is no reason why he couldn't have done a million other things. But he decides he needs a prop gun from a theatrical company. He then points it at the guy who was standing on stage addressing a bunch of people and he says i'm gonna have my ants shoot you with a gun now of course ants aren't very generally good at shooting guns but they've got a whole rigged system set up where the ants can shoot the gun think you can move that rubber tree plant (laughs) exactly and so he says i'm gonna have my ants shoot you if you don't tell everybody that i'm a good guy and you're a bad guy and he's like okay i'll just tell them and then i'll instantly tell them otherwise he goes ahead and announces to everybody very well. Listen, my friends, I have made a serious error. I misjudged the Ant-Man. He's an honest, law-abiding citizen, worthy of your respect and admiration. He says, I'll have my revenge. Watch me turn the entire city against you now. But then suddenly he's got laryngitis, and Ant-Man has exposed him to some microbes that cause laryngitis, and he can no longer command the crowd, and then the crowd attacks him, and he says, wait, wait, hear me, hear me. He says, but none will ever listen to Craig's hypnotic commands again. And Craig then realizes, the Ant-Man, he defeated me. And even when I regain my voice, the chances are a million to one against it ever having the same hypnotic quality. So apparently, laryngitis permanently changes your voice, and you lose all your hypnotic powers. Let's be fair. It permanently changes radioactively induced voice <laughs> powers. I mean, you know, that's obvious. You know, it's, it's not, not a regular voice. Come on. So meanwhile, uh, I just want to point out once again on page four. Panel four. Could you read the caption on the top of that panel? (laughs) (laughs) I see how it is. (laughs) I've been taking notes from James. Page four, panel four. It says, and then when Craig happened to be passing through Center City, home of the Ant-Man. So you have been claiming since our first episode (laughs) and then persistently in all these episodes that it will eventually be mentioned that Ant-Man lives in Center City, which is where Fantastic Four was also set for its first three issues. Central City. So oh. I don't know if that's the same thing or not. I mean, granted, this is Larry Lieber doing the script on this one. So but one way or the other, this says Center City, and the other one says Central City. So I don't know how literal you want to get about whether this is the same place or not, or if you just want to pretend this never happened. Yes. So I am wrong. You were right. I eventually said, like, (laughs) Steve, you're insane. This is never going to happen. You've got to stop looking every issue for some evidence that Ant-Man is not based in New York like everybody else. But indeed, here we have Larry Lieber claiming that Center City is home of the Ant-Man. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it's never mentioned again after this, but I think I've learned (laughs) not to do that. Well, I mean, until the 80s when they start working Central City in as backstory kind of stuff. But yes, I I believe you are correct that they just assume that everyone's in New York City after this. They really have been up until now. But, you know, I guess that uh, Larry just didn't get the message. When I ran into this, I sent Matt a screen capture circling the irrelevant dialogue. I said, I am revenged upon your scurrilous calumny, because that's how I actually talk when I'm talking to my brother. (laughs) In real life yes we just get it all casual here as a matter of fact you know what i'm pretty sure that my american accent has everyone fooled right yes everyone thinks i'm actually american yes <laughs> it's amazing uh, 
It, it really is. Uh, I've worked on it so hard. As a matter of fact, I can't really do any other accent anymore now. Yeah. That's all I can do. But that is it for this month. We've gotten through everything. Any thoughts before we wrap it up here? Things are still suffering without Kirby doing all the books. I think that things were piping along so well a couple of months ago, back when Kirby was still drawing up virtually everything Marvel was doing. I think that Heck is doing a pretty good job on... A heck of a job, one might say. I wouldn't quite say Heck is doing a heck of a job. I'd say Heck is doing less than a heck of a job. (laughs) I I would would say that by definition, Heck does a heck of a job. I think it's a tautology. Heck, I would say, does less than a heck of a job on Ant-Man. He's fine. It's good to have him inking himself. I think that it was interesting to see Kirby come back to Iron Man, but ultimately it's not his baby. It's not a book that he is pouring his heart and soul into, as he will with some other books later. Eris is doing fine on Strange Tales. I certainly miss Spider-Man this month. I'd forgotten he had the month off. I certainly miss the Hulk, who has now had his book canceled. This month is ultimately a fairly forgettable month for Marvel Comics, with the big exception of Fantastic Four number 13 with the Red Ghost and the Watcher, which is an absolutely gorgeous issue, an issue that has resonated through time, has dominated our own experience of the MCU for the last several months as we've all been enjoying What If. It's just a fantastic issue, which more than justifies this month of Marvel Comics. Yes. Well, you know, when Kirby was really spreading himself so thin, doing all of these different books... On Fantastic Four, there's obviously just a real synergy that's going on between him and Lee. Depending on how much was one and how much is the other, it's clear that it's something in the friction between those two that's really doing great things with that. But when he was doing that and like four or five other books each month, after all, there's only so much you can come up with. And it's yet another alien invasion, yet another giant monster, yet another whatever. And and you know, we see that here with Tales of Suspense. This is the, uh, I just need to get this thing cranked out kind of story. And, you know, when we have more variety of co-storytellers, I think you get more variety of the kinds of stories you're getting. I, I think this is a healthy movement for the line. Yeah, well, it is interesting to get to see some storytelling structures that Kirby would not use, like having these NVIDIA Res flashback structures on both Thor and Tales of Astonish this month. So, as you said, generally not a stellar uh, month except for the Fantastic Four issue, which is an important milestone in the foundation building for the Marvel Universe. Yep. All right. Thank you, everybody. Please rate and review us. Uh, That does help. So you'll hear Matt say that again after the outro music. I just wanted to reiterate. Great. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Bye, everybody. Take care. Stay safe out there. Bye. Thank you for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on Marvel Reread Club in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. See you next time.